Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. For this season of Working, we left the East Coast behind and flew to Detroit. We're speaking with eight people who are drawing on the city's complex history as they work to create its future. In this week's episode, we visited an urban farm run by a guy named Greg Willerer, who goes by the gnome de farm, Brother Nature. We followed him around an acre or two of carefully cultivated land as he harvested spinach and other greens, then packaged them up to sell at local restaurants. If you listen carefully, you might hear an adorable duckling chirping in the background as Greg clipped away at his crops. You hear the ducks back there? Yeah, I went and said hi to one of them. They are so funny. Are those your ducks? Yeah, or my daughter's ducks. Willerer also talked to us about responding to the cycle of the seasons and about his favorite crops to plant. But then, of course, he he also went into the underlying urban dynamics in Detroit from decades of white flight to more recent efforts toward revitalization that both underlie and complicate his work. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Willerer tells us about some of the equipment that makes life on an urban farm feasible. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. So what is your name and what do you do? My name's Greg Willer and my wife and I run Brother Nature Farm. We are an urban farm and a rural farm. We have a 6.9 acre plot out in the country as well. Um, But we're an urban farm that specializes in salad mix. So what does urban farming entail in Detroit? How is that different from farming as, as folks might think of it normally? Um, it's different because it's smaller plots, mm-hmm. um, and it's often difficult because the city doesn't really want to sell us a lot of this land. So this was um, land owned by the city that we're on now? We own this, this plot, but mm-hmm. not all of the farm that we're growing on here is... It's not possible for us to buy it just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more open to having speculators come through and buying lots and not doing anything with them than they are for people to actually take care of them. I mean, so there's a downside to that. You have smaller spaces and people are trying to do high efficiency things like microgreens and, and salad. And then on a positive note, you have a really nice array of restaurants and markets and a close distance between the restaurant mm-hmm. and the farm here mm-hmm. so a lot of urban farmers are doing really well if they're you know selling things that are very efficient on a small 
space, like flowers or fruit, like strawberries and stuff like that. Um, and other, other efficient growers are doing value-added products, things like that. And, you know, you have a sort of micro-marketing strategy where you have people in the neighborhoods and you have people at the markets and restaurants that you could sell to. So how much land do you have out here? How much, how, how much land are you growing on? This is just under an acre, which is about nine lots. And we own about four of these lots. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're growing salad greens. We're, we're in a kind of greenhouse uh, structure right now. Uh, and it, what are you growing in here? What are, what are the, um, uh, the There's plants? a little bit, of, little bit of spinach, a little bit of mizuna, um, some other Asian greens. Uh, and arugula. We put lots of arugula and baby mustards and um, all kinds of things in the mix that that uh, you wouldn't typically see in a spring mix. Mm -hmm. Spring mix is, you know, so universal nowadays. It's It doesn't really taste like anything. So we tend to put things in that have a sort of extreme flavor. So what I'm giving you guys is called Mizuna, but it's not your usual restaurant Mizuna. It's something that has a sort of delayed reaction. Really of slow, spicy yeah. arrival of flavor. Yeah, and in June when it's like really hot, it kind of smacks you in the face five seconds after you stick it in your mouth, so mm -hmm. it's like really unusual. It's astonishing. Um, I've never I've never eaten a, a green like that, I don't think. Yeah, and so having, having something that is unique in terms of its flavor and color and shape and, and also something that is is unique in that it's hours old and not you know days old before the customer gets it mm -hmm. because you're taking it right to the restaurants or yeah yeah so right now uh you're harvesting some of these greens yeah uh clipping them and and putting them in uh bagging them up i guess right mm -hmm. but this is at this point mid late afternoon what do you do for most of the day most of the day on on fridays i'm harvesting mm -hmm. and most of the day on you know the beginning of the week monday tuesday wednesday we're um planting mm -hmm. you know a good chunk of my time there's like different things that i get to do some of it's you know using the the new holland right there with the with the old school two big, bottom plow and big old blue backhoe yeah and it's a combination of you know a variety of tasks but a lot of time is spent plowing and raking and tilling we do a lot of that by hand but the plowing is with the machine mm -hmm. and then we have all these breweries and friends that are landscapers and coffee shops. So you can see there's, you know, a lot of coffee grounds in the pile over there. And we typically have, I would say, about 400 cubic yards of, you know, landscaping and restaurant waste. Mm -hmm. um, not food scraps, but like just the coffee grounds. No, nothing that's going to attract mice or, or, or even rats. But the brewery waste and the leaves break down super quick if you turn it with that loader. And so six months later, we have all of this compost that's finished and ready to go on top of our rows. So mm -hmm. when you were walking around, you might have noticed the sidewalk. It's kind of hard to see because we're about two feet above what used to be hmm. the sidewalk and what was level to mm -hmm. the sidewalk. And that's just from accumulated. So every year, you know, since like what, 2005 and six, mm -hmm. when, you know, I started breaking ground on a lot of this, every year we're adding more materials. In fact, before I even started farming, I mulched everything with 
tons of leaves and wood chips and brewery waste mm -hmm. to form a organic barrier. So that would keep some of the grass in check. It would keep some of the other weeds and even um, some trees that I cut down from tunneling through, you know, because you're suffocating everything. So it's, it's almost like this um, green version of slash and burn, you know, because you're composting on top of things and you're keeping uh, a barrier between like the old plants and the new plants. So I'm interested in this detail that some of what you're turning into to compost here is, is coming from local breweries, local coffee shops. Is that, that true too? Uh, so it seems like some of what you're doing here is, is possible because of other businesses, other startups and things like this that are uh, active in, in Detroit right, right now. Is it fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Like, there's, there's a lot of businesses that are, to be honest, they're kind of frivolous. Mm -hmm. You know, um, like, where are all of these upper middle class, almost millionaires to, to buy all of these frou-frou watches and interesting things that people are doing with these like Detroit startups. Um, I don't know, it's just some of the startups that you hear about in the city are are not really things that Detroiters themselves would would even use or bother with. So but, we're, we're very atypical, yeah. but there are some some businesses, a lot of restaurants that have started up and other food businesses that, you know, we're all pretty symbiotic. Mm -hmm. We often use the word ecosystem to, to talk about how a lot of these food businesses, whether they're restaurants or people that are doing, you know, on the shelf products at the grocery stores, sometimes use the stuff that I'm cutting right now or stuff from other urban farms. Mm -hmm. even, even DPS, Detroit Public Schools, buys a significant amount of things like squash and stuff that doesn't perish right away for the the menu at a lot of Detroit public schools. Hmm. So how did you get started in this in the first place? You said you you got going back in in 2005? Yeah, I was a teacher at the time mm -hmm. and I was a very good teacher. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I just got really tired of teaching to the test. Uh -huh. And I was at a charter school and you know how things go um, if you know your history, like when the economy goes bad, they, they meaning like the employers, think that you should just be grateful to have a job. And, you know, a lot of schools, not just my school, but a lot of schools were treating their teachers really unfairly. Um, whether it's not having any sort of say in our curriculum, we were trying to form a union and it wasn't about money. It was more about um, just not... Uh, not teaching to the test and just making things that we thought we could do to make the school better and um, in a very intrinsically motivated way. And, and that ended up badly for a lot of people, hmm. including myself. And that, I was gardening a lot and a lot of the, this like newer generation of gardeners was selling our products at what, grown in Detroit. that you were growing? Yeah, we were selling like extra heirloom tomatoes and basil and salads and stuff like that mm -hmm. and it was something I was doing in the summertime and you know my students and I were doing a lot of community gardening as well and they were in a a lot of them were in a program to sell at the markets and it was just really inspiring and really exciting 
and my mom's a chef and my brother's a chef. And so I knew the value of how much a lot of this stuff costs, even if you're wholesaling it. You know, a lot of the basil and microgreens and other things like that are really expensive. Mm -hmm. And just looking at what I was doing, you know, I just challenged myself to expand the farm a little bit more and then get it to a point where I could make a living um, and make as much as I was teaching doing this mm-hmm. and on an acre and I did yeah it, it took a you know a couple of years and fortunately I was in a place where I didn't have a mortgage you know because I bought the the white house there I bought it cash and then recently my wife and I um, you know <laughs> which you know this was about 10 years after I bought the white house you know fast forward I'm, I'm married and my wife and I were living in the white house at the time and we bought this corner house too cash um so yeah, we were making a living doing this, and with the with the freedom to decide, you know, what we're gonna do every day, and not having someone undo the work that that you're doing or um, telling you what to do and all this other stuff. So it was just a much more enjoyable lifestyle to to have the freedom to decide like everything mm-hmm. that you want to decide during a given day instead of you know, instead of being told like what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and how much time you should have to do it. So I imagine that one thing that does though have to necessarily direct the rhythms of your life to some extent is, is the seasons. I mean, presumably yeah, and the weather. I mean, there, there were, there were times last year where it was just really hard to go out because it was so hot. We had a heat wave and you know, mm-hmm. we are at the mercy of the weather and I would rather be at the mercy of the weather than someone who thinks they know how to teach and someone who thinks they know how to make policy decisions. Yeah. How much does it affect your bottom line though? I mean, do the economics of urban farming change throughout the year as crops change and such? No, we're blessed and we're fortunate enough to have so many restaurants nearby and not all of them want our stuff, but a lot of them do. Mm -hmm. And you know, what we're doing is is a sort of import replacement a term that economists use and you know stuff that doesn't need to be imported can be replaced locally Mm -hmm. and we have a superior product that tastes so much better than the stuff that's imported from california mexico or wherever you know spring mix comes from and because of that there's always a demand for our stuff Mm. so what do you i mean spring you're growing these spring greens, some of which are uh, really unlike, as, as you showed us before, uh, you know, anything you'd normally find in a, in a spring mix uh, bag. Uh, but what do you grow the rest of the year? Pretty much the same thing. You know, there, there are some things specific to the summer that we do. Mm-hmm. We'll have some lettuces that we grow that can handle the heat better than arugula and spinach that do not like the heat. And then um in the fall we'll just replant the same sort of mix that you see right here and we'll grow that again in the fall and a lot of this stuff like this spinach for example that i'm cutting it's from last september it wintered over and it you know goes dormant in the winter but it's still alive and then it grows again in the spring so i'm cutting on it now and it's about to go to seed so we're going to rip it out and we'll put it back in 
some more spinach back in probably in September for wintering over. So we don't really have to work over the winter, but to be honest, that big steel beast right there is the plow for the truck. So, you know, a lot of these restaurants I sell to all plow snow for in the, in the winter months. And it's one of those things like I'll have nothing to do for six days. And on the seventh day, we might get a little bit of snow and I'll go out and do some work. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty chill. Most of my winter is kind of like a summer vacation where I'm just drinking and playing ice hockey, basically. <laughs> What are your favorite things to grow out here? Um, my passion is truly in leafy greens. I love growing things that are atypical, that have a much better flavor. Um, like one of my favorite things is purslane. Purslane is this little tiny weed. It looks like a jade tree plant, but smaller. And it grows in like impossible places like the cracks in the sidewalk and stuff like that. Um, but it, it's a succulent, so it, it grows really well in the heat of summer. And then it ends up, um, oh, there's none of it here. It's still kind of cold to see it. Actually, this is one right here. This is just a, a little sprout of it. See how it kind of looks like a jade tree plant. It has a red stem and a green rounded leaf mm -hmm. like a jade tree. But it tastes citrusy. Huh. And it's, it's, it's juicy because it's a succulent. And, and it sequesters so many... Um, nutrients so it's really really beneficial for your health for your energy level all of these things and for years we've we've grown it without actually planting the seeds because it comes up as a weed right and then we we encourage it it goes to seed in certain places so this time of year we're planting you know arugula mizuna or something else and when the soil temperature gets to be about 65 the stuff that we just planted will sprout and then purslane will sprout on its own so it's like a, a garden volunteer what, what a lot of people refer to and it's amazing because you, you cut it every week and it's tasty and it's exotic looking and people don't expect to see that even some of my friends will will like take it off the plate thinking that I put a weed in there by mistake but it's <laughs> It's this amazing plant. I do notice that there are some other plants that I would recognize at least as weeds, clovers and little sprigs of grass and uh, things of that nature. Is this some kind of uh, dandelion here? Yeah, uh, I mean, and that's, that's like how you know it's organic, mm -hmm. you know? Like you go to some farms out in the country and everything is like organized in rows and there's, there's like nothing coming up except the corn or except the soybeans. And, mm -hmm. and it's because they, they spray the hell out of stuff. Yeah. You know, and if you're going through someone's vineyard or you're going through someone's farm, you can tell, I mean, yeah, things, <laughs> yeah, there's grass growing into the side of the greenhouse and it's a little unkempt compared to like some other, but you know, you can trust that if you have a two-year-old child or something and they're going to be in here that they're not going to get something that is going to make them sick or give them a rash where they break out, you know, because everything in here is chemical free. Everything on our little area is chemical free, except for the lawnmower. <laughs> You're listening to urban farmer Greg Willerer, AKA Brother Nature. After this brief break, he tells us about selling the plants that he grows to local restaurants.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So if someone was here uh, in Detroit and they wanted to, to visit a restaurant where they could potentially uh, find some of your, your salad greens, where would they, where would they go? Um, there's a few places you could... There's a nice little um, bodega grocery store called the Farmer's Hand at Bagley and Trumbull in Corktown. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little 20-minute walk from here. And Farmer's Hand is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a sort of consignment shop for local farmers. So our stuff is on the shelf there, and other farmers have their things on the shelf as well. But there's also um, a sort of bodega sandwich shop. So they, they make uh, sandwiches and wraps and things like that. So you can get a bite to eat. You can get some really good coffee, things like that as well. And, and other products that are Michigan products. Everything at that store that's being sold comes from a radius of about 100 miles, maybe 200 miles from their store. So you can definitely count on it. Hey, Mama Vicky. Hey. So, Do you have to spend much time developing your business is there I mean do you have to reach out to other businesses and, and build relationships and such or, or do people just come to you at this point that's a good question because we're you know we were largely doing this while the grocery stores gave up on Detroit and there were no major chain grocery stores for years and then all of a sudden you know three four years ago Whole Foods moved in and you know, Meyer came back to the city and so a lot of our usual customers that it would be at Eastern Market don't bother showing up anymore because mm. it was Eastern Market a farmers market. Yeah, it's the biggest uh, kind of a hybrid market with wholesalers and farmers. Uh-huh. Um, biggest market probably in the country, um, and we sell a lot of our stuff there. But it's it's frustrating because a lot of people they they gave up on it, you know. So uh, I have these bags all prepped for you, Livy. For the, they need something else in there? Yeah, there's sorrel, there's spinach, there's mizuna in here. And that should be enough. You know, you if you have four bags. This, I, yeah, I have a room. Yeah. I could put more I spinach in if you to... need. And then there's um, three bags I'm forming of just spinach by itself. Or we could go down to two. So that's what the customer's getting a, a mix of pretty much everything that we grow. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so um, are there are there days where you're just at the the market all day, or are you are you here on the farm most um, days? What, what? Saturdays we do the market all day. Mm-hmm. We're there early in the morning until probably about I'd say three thirty at the latest, mm-hmm. and then the other days uh, we're we're doing a lot of wholesaling now because mm-hmm. um, some of these other farmers markets just aren't busy enough. So, so is that where you're having to call up restaurants and try to sell them on your things, or? Oh no, just... we we don't have to do that anymore. They they actually call me now. Mm-hmm. So, um, we bend over backwards for a lot of the chefs 
and they remember us and they take care of us for that. Yeah. Um, although we are doing something new and unusual this by this August, we hope to have a a trailer, not like the trailer you see the ducks going in and out of, but uh, a sort of landscaping trailer that's enclosed that we get a service window on and we do a sort of um, food or produce truck out of. So we would do our salads to go. So people could get a, a salad to go for five bucks. That would probably be twice that in a restaurant. Hmm. Um, that other urban farmers could sell some of their things, whether it's jam they made or you know stuff that they're harvesting on their farm. So it would be like fresh food and some prepared foods as well. So we're going to partner with not just other urban farmers, but an organization called Food Lab, which is a, a business incubator in the city of Detroit that has, um, it, you know, again, it's like that ecosystem. People are helping each other to get their food businesses started, and there's a lot of cooperation, not competition between each other. And when you do that, you know, it's a smart strategy because, like, the competition isn't coming from you know, our neighbors or from other farmers. The competition is coming from corporate America. Mm -hmm. We, we want to try to get people in the city to stop going out to the suburbs and going to those strip malls and spending their money there and instead support each other here in the city at, at mom and pop businesses, black owned businesses, and, and even um, farmers markets. Hmm. What are the, at this point, uh, are there any kind of persistent frustrations to, to urban farming for you, or is it, is it all, all you know, sunshine? The, the city, basically. The city has no idea how many people are really interested in, in coming here as a tourist to see urban farms and to um, see all of these small businesses and restaurants. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's the same thing as like a New York or a Toronto, but on a Detroit scale, like people don't go to New York because they want to see like this big, you know, new Target or Macy's. I mean, maybe some people do go to see Macy's, but um, they go to New York or Toronto for to be a part of that mosaic of small businesses and restaurants and, you know, kind of get lost in that labyrinth that is a New York or a Toronto or, or even, you know, other major cities like Seattle or San Francisco you know they don't go there for the the one horse nature of things and and but the way our our city is functioning they're catering to you know little Caesars they're catering to you know these large companies to, to do their thing and that's that's not how you build a city that's how you get people excited and then it crashes you know the nature of our economy is so fragile that why people would put like so much um time and money and resources into stadiums and stuff like that is just so insane to me where if you want people to really support a city and to to do something long term you know you should support the people, the neighborhoods, and the small businesses. Hmm. Under under kind of best case scenario circumstances, what would your business look like? How how do you hope to make it grow? Um, if we could buy the lots uh, beyond like the little 
stuff close to the house that we have, it would look like a sort of Area 51, but without aliens, it would all be <laughs> salad growing in, in, you know, sorts of uh, hangars. I mean, it seems like a lot of the houses around here are, if not abandoned, then, then actively dilapidated. Does that, does that uh, mean that the city itself owns them? What, what's the story there? Um, most of it, you know, just people like, and I don't want to say black people because it's really not, a lot of the black folks didn't just leave their house sitting there, you know, if they left. A lot of this is still this continuation of white flight where these white people um, here and here and the house that we just bought, they just left the house and it was going to get, that house right there was going to get torched like a lot of other places probably if we didn't intervene to buy it. You know, and they, people just, you know, for, for decades were just leaving their house or they were torching them themselves to get the insurance money. Um, and then people look at black Detroit as the cause of all of this blight and, you know, devastation. And it's not. It's like white people leaving the city. Mm -hmm. And it's still been going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy for me to witness that here because this is, you know, largely a 50-50 neighborhood. It was like, you know, mostly Appalachian and black in the 60s. And so it's easy for me to see that here in this neighborhood. Other neighborhoods are different. But, um, yeah, a, a huge cause of that is white flight. And Detroit is still unable to, to get it right. You know, you have this amazing city, a huge city that used to support 2 million people plus, and now there's under, you know, 750,000 people living here. And, but you have this amazing housing stock that hardly any other American cities would have, where you have that classic two-family flat thing with the hardwood and a full basement. And, you know, that kind of housing stock that's over 100 years old is unlike any other, you know, and you, you have whole neighborhoods that are in their next phase of being gutted, this time because of the banks, you know, kicking people out. And, and it's just, it's sad. It's really sad. And if Detroit could get it right, it would be, they would, they would find a way to protect that housing stock and keep people in those homes and, and kind of start from there. Cause it's, it's a, it's a major asset. Three pounds of spinach right here. Okay, so that would be 40 plus another 20 for the spinach. It's all $8 a pound. I, I would just give them that because it's uh, just 20 for, for this because it's oh, just right under. Or just 60 for the whole thing. And here's the, there's some chervil and onions there. You, you alluded to sort of urban tourism, people wanting to come visit spaces like yours. You, do you get people coming through who just want to check out the farm? This is the first time in a long time I've ever noticed you know, a tourist season with Detroit. This year? Yeah, I mean, you see, like... Talking to the ducks. Um, yeah, you just notice a lot in this neighborhood, especially because we have hostile Detroit, and this White House is actually going to be turned into an Airbnb for mm -hmm. Brother Nature Airbnb, which will be open in a couple weeks, actually. And then just a lot of places in Corktown, since we're so close to downtown, you know, a lot of people we know have an Airbnb, mm -hmm. and um, there's just a lot of people that are, you know are speaking German or French or something coming through here, and 
you know, you, there's a lot of tourism here. I don't think the city realizes that. What are the, are there kind of key pressure points or frustrations uh, that you've had in dealing with the city, uh, apart from the reluctance to, to sell some of the property that might allow you to expand? It's, it's just this sort of um, helplessness that, or maybe not just helplessness, but I mean, there isn't an ordinance for urban farms, but that doesn't mean we have to give up. You know, like you see all of this land just sitting vacant, do something with it. You know, encourage other people to do something, you know, instead of just paying to cut it. I love the duck over here. This duck thinks it's a person. I like it. Hey, duck. Hey, come here. Do the ducks have names? No, they don't know. Because there's so many wild dogs and people's pets that get free and sometimes uh, eat our animals or kill them. So, you know, because we, we contain the animals, but, you know, sometimes the ducks get out and we really try to keep them in most of you know for for nighttime and all that but sometimes during the day we just let them range around it's good for them to eat bugs and eat other things so how did you end up with ducks ducks have a better survival instinct than chickens although this one's survival instinct is questionable the other ducks stay in a group better and they they don't go into the road and they don't try to you know run off they they stay together much better uh-huh. ducks are just easier to contain and um I don't know. Their eggs are a little bigger too. Is that mostly what you keep them for? The eggs? Yeah, and my daughter. So she she, she, she likes loves to play with them. Well, no, she she doesn't play with them. She just really enjoys, you know, the ritual of like going in and looking for their eggs and feeding them and uh-huh. taking care of them. How long have you been uh, keeping ducks? A few years. Do you ever eat them? Um, Slaughter. We've eaten a couple roosters. You know, because mm-hmm. roosters can be a little ornery, um, but we haven't eaten any of the ducks because they're still laying. If if we get to that point, you know, we might make some duck soup out of it. Uh-huh. So. But not for now. Yeah, but don't tell him. <laughs> Come here. Come here. Sorry, I love birds. Yeah. Little dinosaurs. Go away. Uh, sorry, I lost my own train of questioning thought a little bit. Um, do you have any tips for, for people who want to get started in urban farming themselves? Where, where do they start? If you're starting in Detroit, you got to try to buy some land first because it's it's crazy. You would think a city that has so much vacant land would make it easier for folks. And there are some people that have bought large tracts of land in some neighborhoods that, you know, and they've they've managed to do that, but some of the neighborhoods have really bad gang issues and and so they're they're trying to do some stuff in a place that I think is a little bit hostile, you know. And even the uh, Detroit Community Black Food Security Network, like they have this seven acre urban farm out in Rouge Park, and it's a beautiful site, but they weren't allowed to buy it. They got a 10 year lease, which I think is up in a couple years. So they leased it for 10 years, and but they're not able to buy it. You know, if I was in any position of power, I would encourage people, you know, to either give them like a 30-year lease or give them a chance to buy land like that because when you have people doing positive things, it gets 
more people to do other positive things and it just snowballs from there but and here it's just it's just the opposite like that is not um it's not the power of positive thinking that is running our city it's it's this sort of mentality that um i need to get something for everything that i have and you know sometimes greedy miserly people they're trying so hard to keep everything and then what happens is you know that house that they're trying to keep and they want top dollar for the house it ends up rotting or falling apart and then no one can have it and there's a little bit of that happening in the city whether it's you know they're only selling stuff to land speculators and they're only um I mean, there are some urban farmers that were able to buy their lots, but it's like they had to go through all these hoops to get it, and um, they were able to get it, and that's great. We can't even go through these hoops because we're so close to Corktown, and you know, people think we're sitting on a gold mine here, and so whatever. It's it's frustrating, but like my wife often says, there's so much land in the city of Detroit, and you you could read some of the stats, like how many it's measured in square miles, like how many square miles are vacant in the city it's, it's amazing so everyone who wants to do something should have enough space to do that like there's enough room for everyone to do something and if they would do that we'd have a lot more here besides you know the the, the stereotype is, is like fast food restaurants coney islands and liquor stores and some storefront churches so do you uh do you think you're making the city better by farming in it no um but I think we're making the city better by organizing with other farmers. And, you know, we use our tractor and the things that we have to help and to collaborate with other growers. Mm -hmm. So it's not just it's not just about me. I mean, there's a movement of us. It's still small. It's still embryonic, but it's exciting, you know. Like, you can't be out in the suburbs and tell people that the salad that you're serving was just brought in today from, you know, a mile or two away. They don't have that opportunity to do that stuff everything is so universal and you know product oriented and corporation oriented out in the suburbs and here you know there's a lot of mom and pop places and there's a lot of things that are truly unique here in the city and it's it's because of all of these efforts you know not just urban farmers but other food businesses and other people doing unique things and you know that's that's what needs to be embraced well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and showing us around. No problem. I really don't know what this duck is. I really like that duck. <laughs> Can you record that duck chirping? What's the matter? Come here. She just identifies with people. We just got her, and she was with people, not other, other ducks. And now she's kind of like... What are those other ducks doing, you know? <laughs> she wants to follow us around all day. <laughs> so cute. Well, thanks again. All right, see you guys. Thank see you, you so much. Nice thanks to meet you. Later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. If you're looking for something else to check out this week, I recommend you tune in to Slate's podcast, Represent, on which Aisha Harris and her colleagues explore issues of diversity and, of course, representation in popular culture. Uh, here on Working, we'd love to hear your thoughts uh, about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. We read and respond to uh, all the emails that come in. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. 
Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. 